Last week we finished off in John chapter 6, the Passover scene, and immediately following the Passover scene, six months have passed as we read these words in John chapter 7. It's now come to the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the, the Feast of the Booths. This was a gift that God gave to Israel to intentionally come around the fall season after the harvest and remember God's faithfulness in leading them through the wilderness, providing drink and food and sustenance. And, and also it, it, it celebrated as the people would gather in from all over the world. They would come to Jerusalem and they would remember God's faithfulness by building these little tabernacles, these little booths that they would take down at the end of the tabernacle time. And they would remember God's faithfulness and God's kindness. It's in this scene as Jerry read for us, that Jesus comes and makes this declaration of who He is. What we want to note this morning is that despite the bloodlines of Jesus' own biological brother, brothers, and despite the, the wisdom and the mind of the greatest and sharpest of Jewish religious leaders, their bloodlines and their brains, they still could not make their way to Jesus. They still needed to be born from above. They still needed the working of the Spirit upon their life. And so this morning as we come to this text, we come with hopeful hearts and yet with humble hearts, joy-filled hearts, realizing that it is but by faith in Christ we have new life, but the new life that we have, we pray that God would pour it forth from our lives everywhere into everyone. So in doing so, let's take a note first and foremost that those from the world are of the world and bound to the world. We know this even with Jesus' own brothers in verses 1 through 13, that even Jesus' biological brothers cannot make their own way to the way. Now Jesus shortly in a number of chapters will refer to himself as the way, the way, the truth, and the life. Well, note in the book of Acts, the believers that are gathering together, they'll be referred to as those who belong to the way in some different areas. His own brothers, those that grew up with Jesus, they're not able to put the dots together of exactly who He is. As a matter of fact, it appears as though they were skeptics. Jesus' own younger brothers were skeptics, struggling with exactly who He is. Nobody would be more networked in a situation than having your older brother be the Messiah. And yet, they in their network and in their bloodlines still needed to come the same way that we come, by faith in the Messiah alone. Now we don't know from their words here exactly if they're being punchy towards Jesus or if they're trying to be helpful, but we do know is that they don't yet believe, which is fascinating. To them, Jesus was a, was a nice, nice, nice older brother, but he was not the Messiah. Who are his brothers? There's a similar scene that unfolds in Matthew chapter 13. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus goes back to his hometown and he's preaching that day in the synagogue. And in preaching, listen to what the crowd says regarding him, his own hometown people. They say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's boy? Is, is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And in hindsight, why couldn't they just name Simon a J name to keep it similar? The, the, uh, uh, my heart that loves to, to hear similar alliteration would love a J name there. But 
his four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and all of his sisters, his four brothers don't yet believe. And whether they were being punchy in, in their language towards Jesus to tell him, hey, you know what, if you really are the Messiah, if you really are doing these things by the power of God, if your father really is the one in heaven, is Yahweh, the heavenly father, then why don't you go up to the feast and show them all these things? Show yourself to the world if that's really who you are. And ironically, in their tone, whether they were trying to be helpful or not, they echo the words of the devil. They echo the words of the serpent in Matthew chapter 4. If you remember this temptation scene, the second scene that takes place, Satan says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus' own brothers say the same idea. If you really are who you claim to be, if you really are doing these signs as you do them, go and show the world. All of Israel is gathering in from the nations. Show them. But Jesus knows the hour of which he had come. And just as he would not be pressured or manipulated by Satan, the great deceiver, neither would he be pressured by his own biological brothers who did not accurately understand who he is. And to that, as a believer, we say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. James himself, we know historically, moves from skeptic to believer. And what is it that changes James' life? Jesus' own brother, the one that he shared the same biological mother with? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when Christ rose again from the grave, he appeared to many and he appeared to James. And James moves from skeptic to proclaimer of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And James, as we know in the book of Acts, would go to become a, a pillar, a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And historically, we know he would go to the grave proclaiming not something he simply believed, but someone he saw, the resurrected Jesus. And it was by grace that James, his own biological brother of Jesus, would, would have to come to be born again. He would come to believe in Jesus. And so we listen to the words of James as he writes his letter in James 4. Draw near to Jesus and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But friends, our own biological bloodlines, our own networks will not make us right with the Lord. And as the letter progresses in verse 14 through 36, we see that in this chapter, we see that even the greatest of minds cannot make their own way to the way. Even the greatest of minds cannot make their way to the way. Jesus, of course, he, he makes his way privately to the feast. He goes, but he goes privately in his own way. And at the feast, as they're gathering together, right in the middle is the buzz. Just remember, each of these festivals, news and buzz of Jesus is spreading and welling up. And as it begins to increase and increase and increase, so too they're looking for Jesus. And the, the leaders, Jesus knowing their hearts, are looking for him. Jesus is proven right again. They're looking for Jesus to capture him, to take him to trap him and to kill him. Jesus, however, is there in private. And right in the middle, he stands up and he teaches. And he blows their minds, the crowds, everyone. And they, it says that they marveled. 
They marveled. And they began to mumble. Could you believe this? They begin to grumble questions. Who in the world taught him? See, they knew his background. They knew his dad. They knew he was one that worked with his hands. They said, well, what rabbinic school did this guy go to? Who taught him? I mean, was he self-taught? How did he, how in the world does he teach these things? He blew their minds. Jesus, hearing them and knowing them, he responds in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but of him who sent me. Jesus uses this to declare his identity right to their face. And sharing his identity, likewise, he pokes at the reality of their own hardened hearts. For in revealing who he is and the fact that they do not receive him, but many desire to kill him, he points out that they do not actually, even though they've traveled, imagine traveling and walking dozens, maybe some 100 plus miles to come to this festival. And Jesus is there and tells you, you don't really desire to obey God. And you're thinking, are you, do you know how far we've traveled? And he says, I, you don't really desire to honor God. You don't really love God. He says, my teaching is from my father who sent me. And how do they respond? They respond by repentance and faith in Christ. And it's an incredible scene, isn't it? No. They do what hardened, proud hearts do. The intelligent crowd and the sharpest of the sharp, the religious leaders, the scholars, they respond in one voice. You know, one of the things I miss most in this season of social distancing, in addition to not being able to gather together as a congregation, one of the things I miss most is that I can't can't go to a sporting event. I can't go to a concert. I can't go to the the first night of of a movie. Because it's at those scenes where you're sitting in this large group of people, hundreds, maybe thousands, and everyone responds in the same way. Everyone groans at the same time something bad happens. Everyone cheers just subconsciously. You can't help but just spew forth the same reactions. Hundreds and hundreds of people. It's an incredible feeling, isn't it? And so in one voice, the crowd who is gathered from all over the place, in tune with the religious leaders, they look to Jesus and they say, Demonion he. you have a demon. Two more times in this letter, the crowd will declare that Jesus has a demon. Jesus, the one who we're told in Colossians chapter 1, for he is the image of the invisible God, that he is before all things, that all things were created in him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and all things are held together in him the sharpest of the sharp 
the very people to whom the revelation of God was given, of the promise. They look light in the face. And they say, darkness. They look the very one who is maintaining their molecular being in the eyes. Yahweh, Emmanuel, God with us. The eternal Son in the flesh sent from the Father. And they say, demon in unison. The greatest of brains, the greatest of bloodlines and networking are unable to bring one to the way. A number of years ago, a couple who was loosely connected to our church would see them just a couple times a year. They reached out for some marriage counseling and then filling out the paperwork that all couples need to fill out before we see them. She marked on her form that she was a believer and he marked on his form in that section that he's an atheist, that he doesn't believe in Jesus, he doesn't believe God even exists. So in our counseling, our first session, that's one of the first things that we deal with is what's your foundation? What's your foundation? And our foundation is the Word of God, is God who's made Himself known in Christ and in His Word. And that's how we counsel forth. And so in addressing this, I, I said, can you share that with me? And he said, listen, he says, I, I don't, I'm not judging you. He says, as a matter of fact, I, I envy your faith. And I envy my wife's faith. And I wish that I could believe. It would be comforting if I believed, but I don't. So I asked him, I said, would you do something for me this week then? If you don't believe, would you do something for me this week? Every morning and every night, would you pray? Would you say this? Jesus, I struggle to believe if you exist or if you're God. But if you are, would you take away everything from my life? whatever it takes to show me that you are real and that you're trustworthy? Would you take everything out of my life, take everything away from me that you need to, to show me that, that you are God and that you'll forgive my sins and that I'll repent and trust in you alone? I said, would you pray that every night and every morning this week? And he did not respond to me. And so I began to repeat my question and he said, I'm not going to pray that. I'm not going to do that. Why would he struggle to do something if he didn't believe? And it revealed, I think, a reality that he desired to be his own God and he enjoyed being his own God. You see, if there's anything we see from this text is that it is by grace we're saved through faith in Christ. And we see as believers a reminder of God, thank you for rescuing me and saving me. Now, now God is not someone absent of evidence. But the reality is, a matter of fact, in this very text, we see that God uses reasoning. It says that some do come to believe. And in their coming to believe, what's it say? They reason. They say, look, nobody could do any more signs than Jesus has done to show us who he is. That he really is actually from the Father. He really must be the Messiah. Nobody could do more things. They reason correctly and they come to belief in Christ. But even in their reasoning, you see, God 
ordains the, the means, the way, as well as the end of the way. And so we encourage you. We are a question-loving congregation, but a question-loving with the reality of saying, God, I need you to do a work in my mind and in my heart, my inward being, in my will. I need you to give me new life to be born from above. That's what we see from the crowd and the masses here that have gathered for this festival of booths. And it's the same that we see with Jesus' own biological brothers. And it ought to lead us to say, if you don't yet know Christ, God, would you open my heart and my eyes and my mind? I desire to believe. Help me to believe in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. I want to believe and to trust in Him, for He is the giver of life. That's good news. It leads, secondly, this reality that those who believe are forever united with He who is from above in verses 37 through 40. Those who believe are forever united with He who is from above. We are of below, even the best of brains, the most greatest of networked people. And yet He who has come from above, He who, as we'll see, sends the Spirit who will blow and, and bring dead to life to be born again. We will be united with Him forever, all who believe upon Jesus. There's two truths that are abundantly clear. The first is in verse 37. We note that the thirsty who come and believe in Jesus, they receive the way. The thirsty who come and believe in Jesus, they receive the way. It's now the last day of the Feast of Booths, and the last day was the most climactic day. For it's takedown day. Everyone is taking down the little booths that they've been sheltering in for the festival. And in this, there's this incredible ceremony that takes place. The people are being obedient to the commands of Scripture to gather together to remember this scene from Zechariah 14 is where they're commanded to do so. And what takes place is something incredible. The priests, they go and they gather this, this large gold jar this jug, and they gather, and they go to the pool of Siloam, and they, and, they, and they stir up water. And they bring the water from the pool of Siloam. Something very cool, by the way, it wasn't too very long ago. In 2004, historically in Jerusalem, the, there were some construction workers that were working, and they found it. They found, they rediscovered this pool of Siloam. So how amazing is God's Word? Well, the priests would go at this time, at the end of the festival, and they would go and gather up this water from the pool of Siloam, and they would bring it in. And in bringing it in, they would pour it out on the base of the altar of burnt offerings. This offering for, for sin. And they would sing, among other scriptures, Isaiah 12.3, With joy, God says, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the people, like I said, uh, remembering Zechariah 14, 16-17, which says this, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, they shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any one of the families of the earth do not go to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And it's with this in mind, this Isaiah 55 type text where Yahweh says, all who come, come and drink. Anyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, let him buy and eat and drink. 
It's with that in this climactic pouring out scene on the last day that Jesus stands up and he cries out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Imagine the scene. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Jesus is the living water from heaven. He's the bread from heaven we saw at the Passover scene we discussed in John chapter 6 for the last two weeks. And now at the Festival of Booths, He is Yahweh and He is the water to whom He declares to all, whether it's one of the faithful Jews that have gathered for the Festival of Booths who are there, or it's the pagan Egyptian if any of them who are thirsty will come to Him and drink, they will be satisfied forever. Come and actively drink of Me, Jesus says. But what does pride do? Pride causes the hard-hearted to double down. Pride would rather lead the thirsty person to Photoshop a bottle of Avion water rather than admit their need and their thirst and their desperate situation. But Jesus says to all who will hear, to all who will but believe, to come to Him and drink. And that's the good news that we celebrate as a church family. We gather together not as people who have everything figured out, not as great bloodlines or the greatest of brains. We gather as people who are openly, by confession, we are thirsty. And we were thirsty, but we've drank and we're drinking of Jesus. And in Him, we have life and life abundantly. And we say to all people, you can come and get in on this. You can come and drink of Jesus as well. Come and drink with us. He's worthy of your life. And we look to Jesus and we celebrate what the Lord has and is doing. That's the good news. Jesus is the way. That's what He declares at the climax of this festival scene. How did it, how does the water flow forth? Well, he tells us in the last two verses of the scene that we're looking at. In verses 38 and 39, he says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How does it flow forth rivers, rivers of living water? He tells us. Verse 39, Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him for them it was still yet future. Christ had not yet been crucified, glorified, and then sending the Spirit at Pentecost to all believers, all who have come to believe in Him. But John makes sure that we understand this. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. All who drink to Him come to life. Jesus says that all who believe from within them. And the Greek gives us this word that our translators, most all of them, the ESV as well, say heart. But the idea is this, it included heart, but it was your inmost being. It would be used of your belly, your intestines, stomach hurts for a, a pregnant woman, their womb. And Jesus says, all who come to me and believe, all who drink of me, from out, from out of their core, from out of their hearts, from out of their innards, will flow eternal water, living water. 
And the picture then is the people are about to disperse back to all the places they had come from. So too is pouring out of them is this transformative living water. And there's so many different scenes from the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel that are being referenced here. We won't look them up, but for homework, you can read Isaiah 12 and Isaiah 55 and Isaiah 58. And and Ezekiel 47 gives this scene that's going to be fully and perfectly satisfied in Christ's coming and eventual new heavens and new earth. But in this scene from under the temple flows forth this stream of water that just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. And it gets higher and higher and higher and so much from Jerusalem that, that nothing no one can pass through it. And the water itself is transformative. So people that, that, that it touches, it touches salt water, and the salt water becomes pure water. It's transformed. And the water is so life-giving that there's just, just massive amounts of water life and, and fish that come from it. And, and on the sides of the water come these beautiful trees that are producing new fruit every single month, and it's changing everything. And to all who us who come to believe from within us, the Spirit of God produces water of life. It's like we're walking around as human water coolers, spilling out, but better, we're, we're human streams. The Spirit is pouring forth, bubbling out life on a dry and dusty world. And if you remember back from the beginning of this text in John chapter 7, do you remember what Jesus' brother said to him? Do you remember what they said? Jesus you really are who you're saying you are, who your disciples say you are, why don't you go to the festival and show yourself to the world? Change the world. Go ahead. What does Jesus do here? He tells us how it's going to happen. He does it, but not how they think. All who come to him and live, they will receive water, streams of living water that will gush forth from them. In John chapter 7, verse 4, they say, go and show yourself to the world. Go show yourself to all the the, the Jews that are gathering together at the festival. Jesus says, I am going to change the world. Living water will flow from all those who believe in me. The Spirit will flow forth life. That's good news. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 more of this picture of how we interact with the Lord by the Spirit. It says in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. John tells the reader, Easter changes everything. When Jesus is glorified for them, yet future, the road to His crucifixion would come. The hour had not yet come, but it would come. Easter has changed everything. And the Lord sending the Spirit has changed everything. We as believers get to gather together and flow forth water. And we encourage you, if you don't know Christ, if you don't have a church home, let us know. Flow living water with us by the goodness of the Spirit who indwells us by belief alone in Christ. It's not about bloodlines and it's not about our brains. It's about belief in the one who is from above. It's in Him we have life and all the uncertainties of shifting circumstances. This leads us to our next steps. Two next step questions. First is, 
is what status is have you in your life before you came to Christ found most tempting? And even today, what statuses do you find most tempting? Is it your bloodlines and your networking abilities? Or is it your brains, your achievements? Where are you most tempted to find your identity and worth and to flow things from yourself as your value in life rather than belief and the one who is from above? One of the joys that we have in gathering together every Sunday is to reorient ourselves to, oh yes, I am a child of God. I am forgiven. I am in Christ. And secondly, how has the Spirit of God changed your former worldly view? And how is He leading you to serve others this week? Talk to the Lord about it. That's the Spirit to lead you to serve and to love others for you are one who flows forth water. Water can't help but flow. The love of God can't help but flow from us in acts of service and proclamations of the truth of the good news that anyone can get in on if they will but believe in the Son who is from above. This is good news. These are the words of life.